You are listening to Go Doc Yourself, your weekly documentary book club. Listen in while we two errands dissect our most recent documentary find. Sometimes weird, sometimes mainstream, but always entertaining. Grab a cup of coffee and let's clutch. Hi, and welcome to Go Doc Yourself. I'm Erin McCart. And I'm Erin McCourt, and we're here with your weekly documentary book club. This week, we're going to cover Who Killed Garrett Phillips? This gem is an HBO Max selection. It runs about, well, there are two episodes, and each run about an hour and 15, hour and a half, something like that. So a little bit longer than some others that we've done, but well worth it, in my opinion. Also, I'd like to point out to everyone that this was my pick from some time ago. So this is sweet, sweet redemption because I've been getting nothing but shit about the Beast of Bray Road. So this one is a little bit toothier. Uh, Well, that's not true, but uh, (laughs) meatier perhaps. But anyway, this one's a, a little bit more serious. And I'm telling you, I have seen this sucker three times. And each time I'm just as feisty as the first time I watched it. I'm picking out different details, but man, this thing is really something. So can I say that this was, I think the documentary that got us started talking towards a podcast, because we talked about this documentary so much and that we drug everyone else in and made them talk (laughs) about the documentary that they hadn't seen yet. And we made them watch it and then talk about it. So this is kind of our birth story. Well, I think too, you got to think about you know, at least I sit there and I'm watching this and I'm like, this can't be real, right? Like, is this me? Is this is this me overreacting to the situation? I'm missing something because this it really can't just be this blatant. So I have a lot of trouble with that in this one. Mm-hmm. So really what this centers on is the death of a little boy named Garrett Phillips. He dies on October 24th, 2011, about 5.30. Well, the action starts kind of between 5 and 5.30. I think it's a Monday night, but I don't, I'm not 100% sure. But I like the way this is begins because it, it has a neighbor in there and they heard some stuff and they made the phone call. I liked that they were kind of like, this is how I would be. I heard some shit going on. I wasn't sure if I should call someone like, you know, because then you feel like an asshole because you're like, oh, my neighbors are like fighting and they're getting it on. And I had to be the jerk face that called and was like ruining everyone's fun. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it was well, it was a good one for your see something, hear something, say something. Anyway, Marissa was the first one who made the phone call. This is happening in Potsdam, New York at a, I don't know, apartment complex called North Country Manor Apartments. So once they've identified that there um, have been some noises, they send the 5-0, they roll up, they can't get in the apartment. There's a lot of noise and stuff like that behind the door, but they can't get in. So they finally get a hold of the landlord and they let him in. And that's when they find this little boy on the floor unresponsive. He's about 12. I think it's interesting that the mom isn't around and nobody really knows how to get a hold of her. I'm not throwing shade because, I mean, you know, I have kids and sometimes they stay by themselves, but I never really thought about, well, if something happens, nobody, I mean, how would people get a hold of me? I mean, they both have a phone. So maybe that is different now. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in 2011, that that might ne- not necessarily have been the case, but there seems to be some serious problems finding her. I think um, in 2011, Declan had a phone and he would have been 11. So I think mm-hmm. it's fairly common. And if not, they would have had a landline. I think what surprised me more is that they couldn't get a hold of her or figure out where she was because it is a very small town. Yes. And yes. it's everyone kind of knows everybody. And so that's what was a little more shocking about not being able to find the mom mm-hmm. than just not having a phone. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously a terrible, a terrible thing. You know, you find out that they go to the hospital and he's pronounced a couple hours later, um, and he's passed away from asphyxiation or strangulation. 
and there's a lot of you know kind of commentary from the family and this these guys are no strangers to tragedy they've had a couple other deaths in the family garrett's dad passed away from an aneurysm when he was little so i mean like they've had a time and anyway finally they get to where tandy is and they're all at the i don't know hospital tandy's the mother by the way yes sorry about that i mean it's such an epic name i figure you just fill in the blanks (laughs) Tandy Cyrus is the mom and she's the one that she lives at this apartment with her two boys. The second, they don't really ever mention a whole lot about Mm -hmm. him, which is fine, but there are three people that live together here. So kind of as the evening, it's kind of chronological at the beginning, of course, and they talk a little bit about who Tandy is because they've got a lot of phone calls and not text messages at this point, but a lot of the communication between the different law enforcement groups. So when Tandy's name starts to kind of crop up as the mom and they're looking for her, then somebody says, well, I believe she's the girlfriend of John Jones, who's a sheriff's officer. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if he's a deputy or not, but he's associated with the sheriff's department. And then he comes in and is doing an interview and just right off the bat, he's a slimy bastard and I'm just out. He's like, well, you know, I've always been there for Tandy and, you know, she's just calling me and, you know, that's sort of how they, how they, how they introduce him. And I'm so creeped out because, He talks about the fact that he was in a relationship with another woman, but he says pretty soon after this happens, well, I'm just going to stay with Tandy tonight and like be with her through this, this terrible time. And I'm like, what do you think that girlfriend thought about that? Do you think she was like, this is cool? Or do you think she would have been like, that's really fucking weird? Well, I think I would have been more on the weird side of it. I think if I were dating John Jones, I'd be like, thank fucking God he's not coming home tonight. Right? That's what I'm thinking. He just... Yeah, he just he's just a smarmy dirtbag. Yes. I don't know how how better to say he that. He doesn't look like you could trust anything that comes out of his mouth. He's going to tell you how awesome mm-hmm. he is all the time, but people who have to do that, I don't know if they're trying to sell it to me or themselves, and neither one is buying it. Yeah, he just comes across as really self-important mm-hmm. and there's just not a lot of endearing things about him at all. Mm-hmm. You know, he's saying that he's always been there for her and all that kind of stuff and I'm like, I wonder if she really had a choice that he just showed up because he found out about it early. That's what it sounds like. And, like I think they got a hold yeah. of him and he got a hold of her is what they kind of made it sound like. Because yes. when they couldn't find her, they're like, well, maybe John knows. Maybe he's got her number. Yeah. So he probably got a hold of her and she was probably, and he was like, oh, you want me to come with you? Because, you know, I'm a man. I can make it all better, whatever. <laughs> and then just tagged along and never left. Yeah. And she might have been, I mean, I guess I, I don't think I could put myself in her shoes accurately, but I at least I tried to think about it. And if somebody had some horrible news like that for me, I think you would just kind of cling to whatever was around mm-hmm. you while you're trying to process yeah. this. So her son died in a locked apartment by himself and there's nobody else around. I mean, good beginnings of a mystery. What's really a shame is that it's a true story. Yeah. So then we're introduced to Mark Murray, who's an investigator for the police department in Potsdam. And he also is an interesting cat. You could kind of get the sense that maybe he's a little less arrogant and dick-like, but that doesn't last too long. I was going to say, I feel like he he's one of those people that genuinely believes what he says. Now, whether mm-hmm. or not he said it enough times that now he believes it, or he believed it from the very minute it fell out of his face, he doesn't seem like he's trying to manipulate anything as much as he's just well, this is my job and this is what I do. And I'm regardless of the consequences of my actions type of person. Does that make sense? Like he doesn't seem like an intentional dick. He just happens to be unfortunately a a dick in the end. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they kind of talk about, 
after Garrett passes away, the wheels of this thing are already turning. They go back to the apartment. They're looking around for evidence as, you know, I, I don't know what the, what the rule book is, what the playbook of law enforcement after that kind of thing is, but I've seen enough CSIs that you, you feel like you go back and they kind of turn all the lights off and have their flashlight out as the only source of light. Mm-hmm. And they're casting a wide circle trying to figure out where all the fibers might be. They take a lot of pictures. There's nothing really graphic that they're showing you, but there's weird stuff like there's a bra laying by his body. Is that significant? We'll never know. They don't, they just kind of brush over a bunch of that kind of stuff so they can get right to the meaty part of this documentary, which is Tandy's ex-boyfriend is a man named Oral Nick Hillary. He's a Jamaican immigrant. He coaches soccer um, locally for one of the four colleges that are associated with this burg. He's a veteran. He seems to have his shit together more or less. And they had been a thing for, you know, maybe a year-ish mm-hmm. altogether. He had children from a relationship that he was in before Tandy. She had two children, but we don't, you know, that's the father of this child is not really ever talked about. So they meet up, they get together, they live together. It doesn't go very well because he's a black man. And evidently in this town, there's only one. Um, There can be only one. (laughs) I mean, if only that was the Highlander has a much cooler connotation. True. What is going on in this town? But yeah, it's sort of your classic small town thing, like everybody's in everybody's business. They don't really have the opportunity to see where things go. They seem to be very into each other. They show a lot of text messages, which is really cute. And they just seem like an affectionate couple. But because they are kind of dealing with some of this interracial relationship stuff, and Nick seems to be a bit of a disciplinarian versus Tandy for Garrett's sake that they decided to, you know, keep separate residences so they could still see each other if they wanted to, but they don't live together anymore. And it's going to stay that way. They don't ever really patch it up. And that's kind of the whole crux of this this whole to-do. So I guess Nick is just so enraged that he can't have her back, that he goes and kills her son to either get her back or to punish her for leaving him with all her goddamn nerve. It sounded like... I don't know. Getting rid of an obstacle is the way they kind of framed it. Yes. Like, oh, clearly mm-hmm. Garrett was the reason you're not together and you were so upset that mm-hmm. you're not together. You're going to kill a 12-year-old child mm-hmm. to get this one beautiful woman in town back. With the execution of some kind of Sherlock Moriarty style plan, because there's no evidence ever found. No. There's no fingerprints. Not a, not a one. There's no DNA. There's nothing. Really about what they have is... Upon going back to the apartment and kind of scouring again, they notice that some of the mini blinds are bent outward and the screen of a window is slashed. And so then you kind of get into this talk about the superhero style jump out of this window (laughs) to where you land on a tile and potentially crack it. They don't ever talk about timing of this stuff. Like, I mean, we don't know when the tile was cracked. We don't know when the window was messed up. We just know that a couple people may have heard somebody kind of moving around inside the apartment. They couldn't get in until somebody with a key showed up. And then sometime later, it was discovered that the window itself had been pushed out at some point and somebody may have Thor-like jumped off and like landed with a big crack in the tile and evidently just run off into the night. So Really fast. Yeah. Well, I mean, that comes up later, <laughs> right? So um I mean, within hours of this kid's death, they're like, well, the only the only option. I, I couldn't imagine anyone who else would want to hurt him. And I'm like, I it sounds like there's nobody that wanted to hurt him. So 
it really feels like grasping for straws very early. Of course, because it's 2011 and the internet exists, there's a lot of comments that they show on different, I'm assuming their news publishes an article, then there are comments mm-hmm. and trolls and shit at the bottom, you know, making all their uh, bizarre statements and trying to get you to buy stuff occasionally. They talk about other possibilities, like might have been the knockout game, or it might have been some kid on kid violence. Mm-hmm. But again, there are no fingerprints. There's no, there's no evidence. And that's pretty common. I mean, that never changes. So the police get a hold of Nick. They come over to his house because he's got his children. They tell him that Garrett died and kind of, to me, it's a bit of a feeling out like, ooh, what's going to happen if we come over and rattle your cage? And he was like, well, shit, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. And he makes some phone calls to try to understand a little bit more about it. Well, he calls Tina uh, immediately like, hey, I'm really yeah, sorry. But, I just yeah. heard if you need anything. Yeah. And of course, she doesn't ever really call him back. But at this time, I think that it's been pretty well established that the narrative is that obviously she knows her son is dead. But the rest of the story is now that an ex-boyfriend has killed him. Well, not an um, ex-boyfriend, and- that ex-boyfriend. Because oh, I don't sorry. think yeah, you're I don't right. think you mentioned that John Jones is also her ex. Yes, so she's got. Well, I mean, we we probably need to talk at this point about the reason she's got. Probably most women have more than one ex, just a few. But she's the only eligible woman in town. Yes. Is sort of the feel that you get from this sucker. She's the only um, attractive one in she, town by their logic. That's brought up that, um, you know, wow, she was good looking. She worked at a bar. John Jones, when they lived together, he liked that she was attractive. And you don't get the sense that it's because he thought she was full of inner light and just a beautiful person. It was more because his friends and stuff would comment on, you know, people just thought she was attractive and that made him look better is really what it comes down to for me in this. And I was like, he's just gross. I don't know. I mean, Um, that is what he said, though. He said, I liked being with a woman that other people found attractive. And if you look at him, you get mm-hmm. that because people aren't looking at him thinking he's attractive. So yeah, you know, he feels like, Oh, well, I still won or whatever, which is interesting because I don't recall Nick ever really mentioning that. Like, yeah, she was attractive enough, but it wasn't anything that he brought up as to why they were together. And that I think right. speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Tandy was a bartender. Nick Hillary used to go in there. I think he took his some of his coaching. Um, Peeps. Yeah, though she was a soccer player at one point. And so they had something to rap about. They could kind of pick each other's brains. And I think they bonded on that. And Nick says, look, we started off, we were just friends. You know, they were probably attracted to one another. But the, again, they kind of reference some texts and stuff like that. And it seems legit. Now, one could probably say they were kind of choosy when they put, you know, whatever text mm-hmm. and stuff they did into the documentary. It just didn't seem like it seemed like there was a a normal evolution of a relationship. They talked, they got to be friends, they decided there was a little bit more something there and they wanted to pursue it. They were both in relationships when they met. Um so that made things a little bit messy, but John Jones by God, he was not satisfied that things with Tandy were going south and so he blames Nick Hillary for that. He discusses this pretty openly mm-hmm. that he just happened to be out one early morning and saw them in the car together. And I'm like, that's real stalkery. Mm-hmm. So he catches them. Those are again, sort of his words. He's like, well, there's only really one reason that they would be together that early. And I'm like, maybe they went for donuts. Fuck. I mean, I mean, she's a bartender. Maybe she works late. I right. mean, I don't know. We don't have a lot of those details, but again, there's a lot of assumption that, you know, just to the worst, just to the worst of all of this. So then at some point, John confronts Nick at his kind of blows up his spot, right? With his, Girlfriend, Stacia? Yeah, they call her um, Stacy or Stacia. 
So I'm not sure how exactly okay. you pronounce it. And I apologize to this, okay. I'm sure, lovely woman if we slaughter her name. All right. So John Jones goes there and confronts Nick and is like, listen, are you guys seeing each other? And Nick's like, no, but thanks for coming over. So again, there's a lot of intent, but behind going and confronting somebody at their house, it's just really rubbed me. Well, I find the dichotomy between the exchange, right? So you have John Jones saying, well, I went over there, man to man, talk to me like an adult, blah, blah, blah. Where Nick was like, dude, he came at me. He was pissed. He was yelling. It was not okay. My kids are here. And then John Jones proceeds to go talk to Stacia and say, oh, how are you with this whole situation of Nick and Tandy? And of course, Stacia didn't know anything about it. And so she's like, uh, beg your pardon. And that leads to a huge altercation between Nick and, you know, his partner. And mm-hmm. that blew up. And that was purely intentional. Although he tries to act like it was just not. And it clearly was. Right. This, this is what men move. do. Yeah, it was yeah, absolutely. It was a move. And Nick the whole time is like, look, I think you need to go talk to Tandy. Like whatever mm-hmm. your problems are, you guys probably need to solve that which is actually what an adult would do. Like, yeah, maybe, you know, fix your spot before you come and try to blow up mine. But yeah, so I mean, like kind of setting the scene for some resentment. There's some conversation through different reporters in the area that are bringing up some of these things that John Jones was racist. And now the love of his life is, you know, with a black man and kind of sets the tone for this guy is showing some signs that he's a bit unhinged. Mm -hmm. But right away, he and Tandy are kind of now buddied up after the tragedy and he goes to the interview with her the first time at the police station. Yes. Yeah. The first time she talks to the police about this and um, she's playing the messages that Nick left her. I don't think it's particularly inflammatory. He's just like, Hey, I'm so sorry to hear about this. I'm here for you. Let me know whatever. And they're holding hands. There's hugging with uh, Mark Murray and John Jones. I mean, so, you know, they're buddy, buddy and he is hip deep into this thing from the first word. So it's kind of gross. Yeah. And even Mark Murray stated that John Jones had asked if he could be in there. And he's like, I didn't see a problem. And we let him. But if I were to do it again, I wouldn't let him be in there. Even though he still says, oh, well, he he didn't hinder the investigation at all. He offered 100%. But it's a clear Mm -hmm. conflict of interest. Yeah, especially when, well, he didn't hinder the investigation, really, because I think that you don't have any fucking idea what hindered the investigation. You zeroed in on something very early. You moved mm-hmm. to suppress the, the press. You're trying to kind of sway all of this and put pressure on this guy. And it's kind of crazy. So not only does he talk to Nick, they get Nick to come down to the station. I will say that they had amazing footage of some of these interviews, the interview with mm-hmm. Tandy and John. And then mm-hmm. when it comes to talk to Nick, they ask him to come down. And this is when he's supposed to look at a roster or something for something. And it's a total bait and switch. They get him in there and they're like, look, we we know that sometimes accidents happen. And, you know, we just want you to be, you know, honest and clear your conscience. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm down here to answer a question for you. And they keep coming back to this, like, look, we have this news conference in 10 minutes. What are we going to tell the press? Do we tell them that it's still an open investigation or do we tell them we have somebody in custody? And he's like, I don't know. Tell them what the <laughs> fuck you want. I mean, <laughs> it's really kind of the best comeuppance as far as, you know, a lot of times when we see interview footage, it's like the police have some poor kid who doesn't know any better and they like 
uh, it's, maybe I stabbed her. You know, like they have no idea what they're saying. After 12 hours with no right. food or water. You know, they have been able to go to the yeah, bathroom or whatever. And I mean, I would crumble just from the lack of food. Yeah. So uh, In an hour, really. I'm right. the worst person ever. But I mean, kudos to Nick for coming back and being like, hold on a second. We are really getting off topic from where we started. And I need to understand, why are you asking me this? What are you trying to get at? And they are just trying to dodge and weasel and all kinds of stuff. And it really culminates in the fact that they read him his rights. And then they're like, answer this question. He's like, you you just read me my rights. So now I know that anything I say after this, you guys can use against me. And it's like, they've never dealt with a person that wasn't going to cave immediately before. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was probably the best part of that. But still, you're sitting there and you're so uncomfortable. For me, it was just so frustrating to watch them try to get these aha moments all the time. Like, well, when was practice Monday night? It was just Monday night. You know what you did Monday? When was practice? And he's at this point realizing, I'm not telling you anything. Do I know when practice was? Sure, fuck do. Am I going to tell you anything? No, because clearly you don't have my best interest at heart. And Gary Snell, who was a state there police officer, go. I believe, yeah. and he was in there too. And he was, you know, I told you I wasn't going to lie to you. I'm going to be straightforward. I'm going to tell you everything. And yet shit still fell out of his mouth. That was clearly untrue. Well, like and, oh, people talked to Garrett before he passed away and they were, you know, would, would you like to know what he said? And Nick's like, yeah, okay. And then he's like, don't you know what he said? And it's just like, you're not getting anywhere on this. Mm -hmm. Please change tactics or, you know, do something else. But, you know, they're not able to trip him up with their ham-handed antics, which is great in this case. He does have a good, like, kind of an ace in his pocket. Manai Tafari is a former teammate of his who's an attorney. And I don't know that they said what his specialty was, but he was well-educated in criminal law here because he was the first one who's like, that's really weird that they came and told Nick, kind of let him know that this ex-girlfriend's son had passed away. That's not right. Not normal. And, yeah. Yeah. And then when he was at the police station, he calls Manai again and he's like, it's starting to get real weird. So Manai's like, all right, um, he lives in New York City proper. So I think he hopped in the car and started to make the several hour drive to get to Potsdam. There was also a local attorney that was contacted to try to get him some relief because as we're talking about some of the not more comical things, but it was good to see somebody just not like kind of standing up to the cops. He was very mm -hmm. respectful. There wasn't anything that he oh, did yeah. that I was like, oh, here we go. But they keep ratcheting up the pressure. Like they take his phone, they block the door. He cannot leave. They make him stay until they can get a warrant <laughs> yes. for his person. Yeah. Right. So that I think that was the most appalling is they strip searched him literally and took pictures of him naked, completely naked, yeah. which is uncalled for considering they were technically looking for any injury that could have occurred during his superhero jump. Yeah. And why did he have to be naked? I mean, even Manai said, unless it was a rape case where the victim bit the perpetrator's penis, there's no mm. excuse for them to be naked. It's just it's fucking um, ridiculous. Yeah. It's kind of psychological warfare. Like, yeah trying to get kind of get under his skin. But like I said, he is a calm, cool cucumber throughout this thing. Like, at least he's not reactive. Let's say it that way. You can kind of tell mm -hmm. that he's like, look, please don't take my phone. Please don't take my phone. So you I mean, there's emotion there. Mm -hmm. It's not like he's robotic, but he doesn't rise to the bait. And I'm like, oh, good on you. Because, you know, they talk oh. a little bit later about like, they were trying to entice him to react. And then they'd have him on resisting arrest or whatever. Mm -hmm. But again, this isn't 
opinion, there's footage and you can see it. It's it's really tough. Yeah, I don't know. It's just very cringy to watch this. You know, they got their injury. Oh, I love that part. Yes. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, what would you say, a dime or a nickel size scrape on his ankle. What a rug burn would be. You know what I'm saying? It's not mm-hmm. like spurting blood or anything like that. It's it's not, not a, a broken compound ankle. fracture. Right. Yeah. And they're like, well, that's it. That's what we got our smoking gun. I'm like, really? That's mm-hmm. the weakest smoking gun I've ever seen. And then um, Mark Murray kind of sits there and he kind of expounds on like, well, this injury is clearly like, this is exactly what you would get if you jumped out a window. And great example of him just being completely sure of what he wanted to see. And then he's like, well, uh, when I asked him how he got it, he said, I don't know, maybe I was moving furniture or something. He was like, of course, that's it. And again, I come back to the fact that I am routinely bruised and battered and I have no idea how I got any of it. You know, I'll have something on my, I mean, especially on your leg where you're bouncing into stuff all the time. I mean, you see my balance. It's horrific. I mean, that's all that they found was this tiny mark on his ankle. And again, Mark Murray's like, well, if I sprain my ankle moving furniture and it's like, you, but he didn't sprain his ankle. He got a scrape. Well, so, and they try to determine what piece of furniture, what piece of mm-hmm. furniture. He's like, I don't know. No, I mean, how would you know? He's like, Mark Murray's like, I know every single scrape and bruise I've ever gotten ever. And all I could think of is even John the other day was looking, he's like, he has a huge chunk missing out of his thumb. Like yeah. a huge chunk missing out of his thumb. I'm like, what did you do? He's like, I don't know. I mean, it's not even me. You can't even say, oh, stupid little lady brain. You couldn't possibly retain all that information. No, even a man can sometimes not know what happened when they're injured. Well, I just feel like he's doing so many manly things that it's unlikely that he's going to be able to catalog all the manliness that was happening to yeah. isolate it down to one small event. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if you're talking about John or Mark or Nick, but in any well, case, yes. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I, I actually need to talk to John at some point so I can move away from this like character of him that I have going on in my brain. He can put a bike mm-hmm. together like nobody's business. Absolutely. And I love that part of it. No chunks of thumb missing in that right? yeah. circumstance. He knows his way around it. So we talked about the fact that they found this horrific injury that could come from nothing else but jumping out a window. We yeah. talked about the strip sh- search even. And I also like the fact that they made him leave in a hazmat suit. Like that's how this kept got his, to leave. They kept his clothes, yeah. Yeah. One of Mark Murray's, my other favorite comments was when he was discussing. Now, keep in mind that this is well after like this is the documentarian interviewing him after the fact, mm-hmm. right? So this is years later that he's going back and listening. And so he, he's had time to think about this and this still <laughs> fell out of his face. Right. We discussed that they had, you know, they took pictures. Other people had pictures taken naked as well or whatever. And they're like, well, who? He's like, well, Garrett Phillips. Um, mm-hmm. No, that doesn't count, sir. Yeah. Those would have been <laughs> autopsy photos. That's a whole right. different a whole different dynamic going on there. But there were other people that were photographed, but we just don't know who it was. They say it's John Jones, but his face isn't in it. And you can see that they mm-hmm. had him roll his, like he's wearing a like a collared dress shirt and a tie and he, they have him roll his sleeves up to the elbow. So you can see his forearms turned over one way and turned over the other. And then mm-hmm. you can see him roll his dress pants up to the knee. So you can see the bottom part of his legs. He's not naked. There are no face shots of this man. It's just sort of cataloged as John Jones. And I don't know why anyone would ever question anything we do here. It's all legit. Mm -hmm. So Also, I don't think we know when they were taken, like how long after the murder were they taken that any injuries could have clearly healed by then as well. 
Well, I mean, you know, again, they kind of flash a little bit up on the screen and it's Manai, like an interview with Manai, where they show some of this. But again, it's, you know, they don't kind of go into those kind of details. So it just feels like a lot of CYA. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't going to hold up under any kind. Yeah, any kind of scrutiny. They just kind of like, oh, see, it's fine. And they're like, ah, that's so frustrating. So, you know, as you're going through this, you're just getting super pissed off. I haven't talked to one person that was like, I was fine with it. So right, pretty difficult, pretty difficult. They also kind of flash around to, well, they talk to Ian Farley next. And he's the assistant coach that works pretty closely with Nick and talk a lot about their dynamics. And they spent a lot of time together. I don't know if anybody has ever been with somebody that's a coach or was a coach themselves, but coach and assistant coach are pretty tight in most sports. They just spend a lot of time together. Also, this is kind of the time when you realize what a small town this is. I think it's maybe got one stoplight, maybe a stop sign, maybe maybe a series of right-hand turns, I mean, to get around anywhere in this town. But um, Mm -hmm. Ian Farley and Nick Hillary live pretty close together. I mean, they don't discuss, I don't even think it has to be driving distance. I think they're close enough to walk. But And also the high schools are around here. So, you know, Nick's got older kids. So it's very common for him to stop by after school. If Ian's car is around, they do that all the time. And in this case, he is one of the main alibis for Nick Hillary because Nick happened to walk in to Ian Farley's house right in this time frame that we're talking that five o'clock to five thirty window. He gets there at five twenty ish and Ian knows because he was on hold with some kind of I mean, he had been calling somebody and, and that's he was like, Oh, like let me look at my timestamp on his phone when he was talking to somebody. So they're like, are you sure? Are you really sure that you want to provide this? And he's like, yeah, why wouldn't I? This guy is a friend of mine. We're not hiding anything. And so again, you get that kind of gross feeling of they're putting pressure on him to cave and like kind of mm-hmm. muddying the waters. Like, well, is, was Nick like super jealous of Tandy? Was he enraged that they weren't together? And Ian's like, I mean, not really. They seemed to be close for a while, but then it kind of, you know, petered out and Everyone was cool with that. So at no point do you get the sense that Nick was just blinded with jealousy and desperate to get her back. So I'm thinking like, it seems like a far cry to go and kill her 12 year old son. So right. Well, and they they seem to get really frustrated when the narrative is no longer fitting what they want it to fit, right? So other people are coming in, they're trying to build this story to make sure that they can convict him when nothing is fitting you know, he's got an alibi now and, and he, you know, has no need. He doesn't really have an injury, let's be honest. And so that's not really fitting. And they, they're pushing harder and harder to try to make the square peg fit in the round hole. And it's yeah, just a lot not. of shoehorning. That's, that's for yeah. damn sure. So as we start to move into what happens in the second episode, kind of the culmination of the first episode was the interrogation and what happens there. So When Nick leaves that interrogation, he's lost his job. He's getting the side eye from everybody in the community because it's a small town and everybody knows everybody else's business. So you kind of see where this is heading now. He's been fucked by bumbling irresponsibility. I mean, that's really kind of what I took away from that. Like they didn't care. They didn't care about that. They were on the hunt to catch anybody for this. So yeah, I think it's unfortunate and we see it a lot that, and I don't know how much of it is pressure that is put on the police departments to close yeah, the course. case and solve the crime versus actually feeling like they got the right person. Right. And how much of it is, well, we need to close this crime. We're doing this. We're going to, we're going to start with this person. And then they talk themselves into it. Right. You just kind of believe it at that point. You've 
you've talked yourself into it. It's horrible. It's frustrating. And sadly, it just gets a little bit worse in the second episode. But I think hearing people talk about it this much later, even like they interviewed the uncle and that Garrett's uncle. And he was like, well, I know for a fact that Nick did it. Do you? I mean, yeah. are you there? I- so if you're from a, a small town and you know all the police officers and you sort of have this impression that they're always going to do the right thing. And I agree with you that I think for the majority of it, they really did believe that this was how Mm -hmm. it went down. But again, it's really troubling that they can't take a step back and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't falling into place. There should be some things that fit and nothing did. And they just keep Mm -hmm. hammering at this and it's just, it's insane. So. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Well, we go into the second episode I mean, it's starting off with things like justice for Garrett signs that they're selling, trying to raise money for like a reward to get information. Mm-hmm. But they talk about how Ian Fairley had moved to Buffalo, right? Mm. Moved on, got a job in Buffalo, which is far away. New York State's apparently a really big state, a lot bigger than I thought it was. But <laughs> they're all California. You didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> And so he notices those signs. He gets to Buffalo and he notices those justice for Garrett signs pretty quickly. And Mm -hmm. we're so far away from where the crime happened that it's clearly to intimidate him and not necessarily Mm -hmm. like they're concerned about solving the crime. Everyone Mm -hmm. thinks they have solved the crime. Nick is living with his five kids. He's now Mm -hmm. unemployed, taking care of them full time. And Nick decides to sue Potsdam for false arrest, illegal detention, illegal search and seizure, emotional distress, and defamation. Mm-hmm. This is where we meet Tom. I do not have his last name written down. Let me rephrase that. I did write it down. I couldn't read my own handwriting, and I apologize. More toddy. More toddy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he's the attorney for the Potsdam Police Department. He said that he had no idea about mm-hmm. this case. He had not heard of it, didn't know anything about it, which screams to me, how, how is that possible, Right. In a small town, I mean, unless he's outside of the town. And well, I think he was still. the one. I thought he was a district attorney or something like that. He could have been, but he said it he had to matter. Google the case. Yeah. yeah, he had to Google the case to find out more. And once he found out it was a murder case, it was he felt like his job to prove that Nick had actually committed this crime. Mm-hmm. So that was how he was going to defend the police department by proving Nick did it. So then they were justified in their actions. Well, I thought it was really funny because he starts talking very early about like, well, now he's done it. Now he's fucked himself. You know, now I'm on the scene and he couldn't possibly like keep anything from my mind like a steel trap. It was just, it was really interesting to say like they weren't worried at all that maybe they had done something wrong. No. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. They had taken Nick's DNA, it was not a match, no fingerprints, no physical evidence, as we'd stated before. So mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting that they're still harping on it. So they go into a deposition and <laughs> He's talking under oath now, right? Because this is for his lawsuit against the police department. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tom is asking him questions, you know, were you at the high school that day? What did you do? Where did you go? And Nick is answering him. Mm-hmm. And Tom's like, I could not believe he was answering my questions. I'm like, what the fuck did you think was going to happen? It, this is him coming to you. And these are not horrible questions or answers. Well, then again, he is also telling like at no time was he not being helpful and like, but he just wanted mm-hmm. some representation and somebody that was there on his best behalf because he obviously can't mm-hmm. trust these fuckers. And Manai's in the background going, I object. Strike for relevance, strike yeah, for relevance. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just hilarious. And it's like every other word, I'm like, how long did this take? But <laughs> they also say that the other lawyers were doing that too. They just don't show it in this, in these clips that you're seeing because it was videotaped. Right. Yeah. 
Well, they had they'd asked, okay, Nick, was at the high school the day of Garrett's murder? Mm-hmm. Why was he at the high school? Well, one, he has a daughter that goes there. And two, there was a soccer game and he would often go to soccer games to watch because, I don't know, he was a college soccer coach. And that's where you find soccer players is at the high school soccer games. Possibly for um, recruiting. Who knew? Yeah, it's craziness. It's crazy. Mm. Maybe he was getting coaching tips, surely. <laughs> and Tom, right. keeps, Tom keeps saying, you went straight home. And, you know, Nick is like, yes, I went straight home. And he's like, well, you turn left. Right. And the shortest route to your house is right. But mm-hmm. you turn left. Okay. Let's discuss, first of all, I drive a different route to and from work, I think, every single day. Just because <laughs> traffic is horrible. Right. So I'm going to take the least horrible route. Even if it might take a little bit longer, I will be moving the whole way. But if I don't stop anywhere on the way home, that's straight home. I don't care if I drove around 465 10 times, it's straight home because I haven't stopped anywhere. Well, I think about times like, I mean, sometimes I'm listening to a song and I'll, I want to finish that sweet, sweet jam. So I'll like make a loop around the neighborhood or, you know, yeah. there's a truck parked in my way or whatever. I mean, it could be lots of different things. Sometimes I just don't fucking want to go home. Um, it's but yeah, kids live. again, it's coming back to this assumption that, you know, you always do things the same and this isn't, there's nothing subversive here. They're, it was just human behavior. And I think it's hilarious that they were like, oh my God, well, obviously these two people existed at the same time. We caught it on tape. Proof, proof, that's it. And you're just like, that's not how logic works. No, but they were definitely using it as a gotcha moment, which I found crazy. Like just Mm -hmm. because it wasn't as the crow flies to get home, I'm going to start just driving through people's yards. That is the (laughs) most direct route. And that's how I'm going to get home. Mm -hmm. Come on now. It, It just... There was a video of this, which is how it came about. There's a video of his car at the school, but they didn't have a picture of the license plate. And so for him to say, yes, that's mm-hmm. my car, they were like, oh, we got it. We got it. So their whole premise I mean, is that he was stalking Garrett because Garrett was seen leaving the school that he went to. And this cat was here and he took a left turn. Well, did you get the feeling that it was like almost like an opportunistic thing? Like Garrett had the nerve to be skateboarding through the parking lot. And you can clearly see him, which I'm like, I, I think it's funny that they could they couldn't. I mean, it's blurry imagery. So, I mean, who's to say what kid this was, but everybody accepted that it was Garrett. So, okay. So Garrett ripsticks through there. And then, you know, seconds later, you see Nick kind of ending up going the same way on this one road, you know, one place in town. But it's just hysterical to me that so many assumptions are made by some smart people here. But I'm like, I'm waiting for somebody to stand up and be like, aha! Like, you know, that they got him. And it's just like so stupid. I know. Yes, exactly. It's so crazy to me. Even even now, how many years later. That is your Perry Mason moment. Yeah. They're talking about it even now. How many years later? They're like, yeah, we totally got him. Did you though? Did you? Isn't it true that you, you know, like, it's not. It's not true. That was TV and it was so much more effective than us being like, yes. that's it? Like, you think you're going to convict this guy on a one left turn? So, Ugh. But but Mary Rain thought Good they Lord. could. So let's talk about Mary Rain. She is my least favorite person in the world, actually. At the beginning of the episode, she's like a DA hopeful. She's The current DA is realizes there's not enough evidence to prosecute. Mm-hmm. She's like... No. And she's really vilified in this. I mean, like, she doesn't make any appearances or anything. And I can't even think of her name off the top of my head. But um, she seems like a reasonable person because she's like, look, there's just nothing here. Like, I'm sorry about you guys, but you know, Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't do anything with this. And they're all like, oh, 
you know, up in arms because it's been so long and it's like, well, okay, I guess. They're blaming her for no conviction, right? Which mm-hmm. is, she's she's not the one to get the evidence and, and do this. It's the police officers who have to do their job so she can do her job. Definitely these guys have never seen Law & Order. I mean, I have. I guess I, I need to go in there and do this. I mean, <laughs> you seem just as qualified as they are. So <laughs> At this point, yes. <laughs> You're like, I understand how logic works. So I win. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mary Rain is using Garrett's murder in the family to try to win the DA yeah. spot. Now, let's put this in perspective. Our Mary had resigned as the county public defender of St. Louis in 2011, citing overwhelming caseload, which was mm-hmm. actually after she was already put on administrative leave. So she's sucking at her job. And then she's saying, oh, I couldn't possibly do it. It's too much work. But somehow this job as a DA is going to be less work. She's going to be able to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. They don't really go into it a whole lot more than that. But yeah, you definitely get the impression that things weren't good. She didn't leave whatever previous job she had on great terms. Mm -hmm. So again, I think if people had been thinking clearly, they might have said, this is the best we've got. I don't feel great about this, but they didn't, they didn't hear a shred of that. They were just like, finally, somebody to convict this guy that we all know has done this. Like, I don't need your stupid evidence. I just, my gut says, mm-hmm. um, I went to like mm-hmm. four psychics and they all told me. Once I paid them to tell me what I wanted to hear, they told me what I wanted to hear. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's so Mary, like Mary mentality. It is. It is. And Mary had said that the cross-examination by Tom was just masterful. Which right. I think should tell you how good she is at her job to begin with. Well, I mean, I think we talked before that she's she's no stranger to a nice bottle of vodka and a cigarette. So <sighs> hopefully not while she's spraying that hairdo because that's a fire hazard. <laughs> her eyebrows are overplucked as shit too. So I mean, like, I don't think she's making great decisions. <laughs> I think most of the women in this documentary had overplucked eyebrows. Uh, hopefully, it's just because it was 2011 and they were still riding that. <laughs> That way, because they're really far away right. from everybody else, right? They get to translate. Where's my Brooke Shields eyebrows? <laughs> oh, good and lord! And my Levi's. Um, right. Or was it Jordans? Was it her Jordans? Was it Jordash? Shit, I don't know. We're bad at right. kids. <laughs> anyway, anyway, based on his testimony, our Mary takes it to the grand jury, and they decide to indict him. They decide mm-hmm. the left turn is not okay. He ends up in jail for seventy days. Because they keep pushing the bail hearing back, which is mm-hmm. bullshit. They talk about Mary Rain is talking about the timeline, right? So at 453, Nick leaves the high school. Mm-hmm. And at 506, Garrett is murdered. That seems really early because I thought they'd put it at like 520 or something. Well, I think they finally get into the apartment at 533, is what I have. The landlord shows up, but the police are there at like, 515, 520, something like that. So Mm -hmm. what I remember of that part of it was Mary was like, this is an extremely tight timeline. And yes, that is the answer. Like I, this almost had to have gone unbelievably smoothly to go down the way they were saying that it did. Mm -hmm. Well, and and here's where one of our favorite parts of the entire documentary happens. Mary Rain is discussing how Nick is very fit and he is, right? He's a soccer coach, but she explains he doesn't have a six pack. He has an eight pack. It's got the maps. So she states in her words, it would be no issue for Nick to jog two blocks in 45 seconds. So Mm -hmm. being the scientist that I am, I did the math. And they see that two blocks is 0.4 miles. Mm -hmm. The world record 
for a quarter mile is 42 seconds. So Nick would have had to have been running 32 miles per hour to get that far in 45 seconds. And I don't know that abs help with speed. They just look good. <laughs> I mean, there could be some kind of correlation, but I don't think that it's quite that proportion of, you know, our squared value of one. I don't believe that that's really what's <laughs> going on there. Because again, I come back to you like, let's say, let's say that he had, he'd parked a couple blocks away. He'd hauled ass over there. Are you telling me that in this town where they are so conscious of this guy and his movements, nobody saw him running? Like, I mean, well, he, it was too hauling ass. Oh, shit. I didn't even think about um, mm-hmm. the, but yeah, like nobody saw that part of it. And we're just supposed to accept this. And again, she hung herself here. She put that out into the world with her own mouth. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Well, so and he, then I, I don't understand the logic either because they, their whole big thing was he had turned left because he was stalking Garrett. He was following mm-hmm. Garrett home. But then they said that Nick parked his car at his house, which is two blocks away from Garrett. And then he Mm -hmm. jogged the 32 miles per hour to Garrett. And then, so why did he turn left if he was just going to go home? Also, they also show, also, they also, please edit that. Um, Nope, it's staying. (laughs) (laughs) Later, they show uh, different footage of Garrett, you know, on the streets. But I'm like, is Nick's car not around? Is they were very focused on him stalking the kid earlier yes. and all that should have been in the video. But now later it doesn't again fit their narrative. So they're like, nobody even discusses that. I don't no, know that there was no car following him. Right. At yeah. Because the, there was a yeah. hospital video that caught Garrett riding by and there mm-hmm. are no cars following him. That must have been when he dashed off to his house, ran super fast to get to Garrett's and then ran super fast back to Ian Farrelly's and not even be winded. That's amazing. Well, when you get to the trial, they talk about a guy named Greg Brown. And I mean, we can talk about that, where that came uh, from. I think you mean G-Money. You oh, I'm sorry. He's obviously <laughs> a black guy. I mean. That's what they um, called him. Oh, I know. I know it was. But I'm just seeing a John Jones who's like, well, I mean, I assumed they meant a black guy. Mm-hmm. I just don't mm-hmm. hang out with a lot of black people. And I'm like, yeah, I think it's maybe that they don't hang out with you. But um <laughs> You know, um, right. Exactly. Like they're like this guy with his, you know, he dances with an overbite so hard. And I'm like, ew. Um, Yes. So I don't even know where I was going with this. Oh, so G money, Greg Brown, who knows the John Jones says it kind of making a kind of comment that supports what we're talking about is he was like, you're, you're trying to tell me that, Evidently, the only African-American man in town jumps out a window, hauls ass down a city street, and nobody saw anything. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's it's very selective what they're choosing to present. And I'm sure that that's kind of the lawyer credo. But yeah. I don't know. It's just it's very hard to follow kind of the picking around of facts that you want to include. And that's very frustrating. I agree. I'm going to tell you that this initial case was dismissed in October 2014 due to prosecutorial misconduct. What a fucking surprise. I wrote down because Mary's a cunt. Sorry, everyone who hates that word, but (laughs) she really lives up to it. Um, Mary Rain had badgered Shauna, who is Nick's oldest daughter, Mm -hmm. as she was testifying. And some of the things that she would do, which Mary talked about after and I thought was hilarious because she thought she was so smart. She's like, 
you know, you have to ask them, what did you have for dinner the night of the murder? And then, mm-hmm. well, when, when they'll tell you, right. Cause they remember. And then you ask mm-hmm. them, what did they have for dinner the night before or the night before that or the night after? And they don't remember. So how can you trust this? And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because this poor girl has been asked about what she had for dinner and every single thing she did that day for the last three years. Of course she knows what she did that day. No one asked about the other days. Why would she remember that? Right. So, I mean, this all came about right after the murder. And I think also you're going to be shocked when you hear this news. And so different details are going to be solidified in your mind. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, it kind of comes down to the fact that you're not really admitting how, you know, human nature and, you know, how memories are formed. And I'm not saying that being a kind of an eyewitness is a great thing, but I just don't think that that's a stretch that you were going to remember one night's dinner on a significant day. Especially because you were asked about it immediately thereafter. And how many times since then? I I think the fact that she says that, like, we should all understand that, that of course you can't trust that information then. And I'm like, dude, come on. She just makes me dislike her so much more. I know. It's just a lot of skin crawl city with these guys. Um, Yeah. Mary is fully in the, in the fold with all that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, because they told, I don't remember who they are, the royal they, if you will. I told Mary that they thought she had enough to convict, but they she didn't carry out the trial correctly, or she didn't mm-hmm. go about presenting it correctly. As in, stop being a bitch, Mary, is pretty much what they're saying. Well, I just was like, it's it kind of comes off as there was a technicality, right? Mm-hmm or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And so that's the message that gets portrayed out into the public because they did have some comments from, you know, different people that were interviewed. And it's just like, well, I mean, they but they probably had enough and the DNA was good or whatever, you know, and it's just like, mm-hmm. no, no. So yeah. Well, was- but the good thing is, is well, because they said that they had enough and that she just didn't do her job mm-hmm. well, they allow her to indict him again. That's not the good part. Mm-hmm. She goes back February 2nd, 2015, Nick is indicted again. Mm-hmm. The good part is because they told her she had enough is they didn't do any more damn work. They essentially took the same exact case in and they didn't do anything else. And so that's kind of good because they didn't have anything to begin with. Yeah. A lot um, of confidence in these, in themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will introduce another person real quick because he helped William Fitzpatrick. He was the DA of Onondaga. I'm going to say Onondaga County. Sure. Sure. Yeah, that's what we're calling it. Mm -hmm. This is a stupid white woman trying to say beautiful Native American (laughs) words, and I'm very sorry. Please correct me. So he helped Mary with this this trial. And this is the trial that you see at the very beginning of the first episode. Mm -hmm. This is a trial at the end of this one. This is is the one that really this is all culminating towards, right? And, And they have the same shit, the same evidence. But what they do have in this one, like you had mentioned, they have a couple things. They have... More evidence against John Jones. The defense does a little bit. So John Jones, like we said, was her ex. And apparently they find out 10 months before the murder of Garrett, Tandy had written a complaint to John's boss because John works for the sheriff's department, Mm -hmm. stating that John Jones's behavior was making her afraid for her life and the lives of her children. She wrote four separate letters to four separate people, I guess. They were all notarized by her, which means... She wrote them their law. Right. However, when the boss presented John Jones with the letter, he said, Tandy didn't write this. She doesn't even know the definition of some of these words. Oh, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. Yeah. And he makes it sound as if there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like he doesn't understand 
I mean, it doesn't even come into his mind how I'm trying to think of a good word to describe the disgust. Misogynistic. Yeah. Or just how insulting that is to her. He's always there for her, except on a news show where he's got to like blast her in public. You know what I mean? It's just like you. Well, and the again, lack this of self-awareness is, from this man is yes, absolutely fascinating. It was fascinating. Well, and he, this is years later. He's talking about this. This shit yeah. fell out of his mouth years later. Mm-hmm. They've had time to think about it. He's like, no, this is what I'm going with. I'm going with this. So that doesn't look good, right? So John Jones is trying to portray it as, oh, clearly Nick wrote these letters and Tandy just signed them because she has no free will. Well, Um, I also think it's interesting too, because why would Nick have her do that? You know, there was maybe some tension mm -hmm. between the two of them, but there's no real, he doesn't win by doing this until way later when it would have, you know, Mm -hmm. they weren't talking at that time. So I don't. I don't understand this play, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Why blame? Yeah, it just, it just screams as she was probably legitimately worried. Mm-hmm. They state that he took part in the investigation. There was no conflict of interest. He cooperated 100%. I call bullshit on all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, as we discussed before, they took pictures of John Jones, but no face. No idea of what the timeline was. So sure, mm-hmm. whatever. They did find some magic DNA. They had compared DNA, Nick's DNA to DNA found under um, Garrett's, Garrett's yeah, fingernails, yeah. and there was no match. But Fitzpatrick orders another DNA test using different software, because apparently that's, that's going to make all the difference in this DNA world. They got a partial profile, which said it was more likely to be Nick Hillary than a complete stranger. But I think you could say that about anything. It's more likely yes. to be someone you know than a complete stranger. Mm-hmm. But the judge throws out the DNA evidence because the sample size is too small and the lab is not StarMix validated at mm-hmm. that facility. So that's the software they're using. This lab was not validated to give results from the software. Yeah. Check those as lawyers and police officers. Check that before you do it. Just saying. So this all kinds of goes back to speak about reproducibility. So they can't definitively say that these results can be repeated and that's kind of what they're talking about here would you agree that that's yeah this is the has not proven yeah. that it can run this test to the standards required mm-hmm. i'm not saying they can't i'm saying they haven't gone through the hoops to prove that they can to give them yes. the credentials mm-hmm. yeah right mm-hmm. i'm sure they're lovely people at that lab oh i'm sure that they are too and i think they said that this had been adopted in several places either mm-hmm. since that time or whatever. So it was up and coming, but yeah, this, this place just didn't have the, they didn't have the documentation that they needed to be able to mm-hmm. reliably say that they could run this. Mm-hmm. And don't worry, folks, we'll do the documentary, how to fix a drug scandal at some point <gasps> in the future, because that really goes into this as well. Yes. Yeah. And that's yeah. really yeah. our wheelhouse. Okay. So they call a thousand people in for the jury duty, which is four times a normal amount. The mm-hmm. problem is Nick knows there's no way there's going to be an unbiased jury, period. When they start doing the voir dire, as Mary <laughs> says, and I always think of my cousin yeah. Vinny. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was one juror that they chose that was the prosecutor's chose that was a friend of Mary's. She said, I think they'll be totally unbiased. There was one that was a family friend of Garrett's the family, the Phillips yeah. family. Yeah. yeah. Totally unbiased. So Nick decides no jury. He's going to go with the bench trial and that might've saved his ass in the end. Spoilers, but yeah. Yeah. I thought it was funny that the way they kind of presented that 
you know, the defense team comes in and they're all like ashen and like, oh, you know, and I was like, is this really, I mean, obviously it's a, a huge deal and whatever, but I would, it was interesting how they presented that this was Nick's decision. And, you know, the defense team doesn't say that we did not agree with it, but sort of the picture that they paint was this was going to be this giant deal. And, you know, almost uh, Mary said she thought maybe he was going to plea out. So the way that they discussed how this decision came about was interesting, I thought, because, you, you know, it kind of, I was like, oh, that was not what I was expecting them to say. Yeah, I agree. They made it out like this was really against their better judgment. But yes, you know, he he did what he thought was best. A couple things during this trial that were really interesting to me was the fact that they have, so the prosecutors have all of the notes from the police from the night of the murder and from everyone that was interviewed. Mm-hmm. They have this at their disposal. Mm-hmm. Whether or not they choose to look at it or not clearly is in question because they were going to call Andrew Carranza, who was a neighbor who was fixing his truck underneath said murder window at the time of the murder. And him and his girlfriend had left the spot where they were fixing the truck and gone back up to their apartment, apparently right before the murderer came out. Like the murderer was probably Mm -hmm. waiting for them to leave. Right. To fly out the window and leave. So they have their statements the night of the murder which state both Shannon Harris and Andrew Carranza were like, we saw nothing. We heard stuff. We heard what we thought was screens ripping, but we looked up, we didn't see anything. But now Mr. Carranza, who was at the time of the trial, a Marine stationed in Hawaii, talked to a PI thinking it was the prosecutor's office Mm -hmm. and said, oh, I'll totally testify that it was a black person. And when I'll totally testify that it was Nick. Mm -hmm. And he believed it. I mean, because Shannon called him and recorded the call and he believed what he was saying. He'd been so, I mean, I, I don't know how you get to that. You're so far removed from it at that point that you're susceptible to that kind of. Well, I think it, you want to be part of the crowd and you want to, you know, I think it takes. So to stand out from all of this, all of this, just belief, just because somebody said so, that's like sort of a weird peer pressure. Like if you kind mm-hmm. of stick with your original guns. I think that that would be very difficult. Now, I think it's interesting that he no longer lived there. So he was out and away from some of that. Yeah, I think this is just a case of he wanted to be kind of useful to this team. Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, willing to say whatever he had to. And then, you know, the defense team found out kind of about it. And they got a hold of Shannon and she calls him up and kind of calls bullshit. Mm -hmm. So then, yeah, once they have her on kind of standby, ready to refute what he has to say, then he kind of backs off. Yeah, but the fact that the prosecutor was willing to put him on the bench, even though it goes directly against everything that they said the night of the murder. Mm -hmm. And the only reason they didn't put him out there is because the defense was like, hey, we have someone to say this is true. And we have documentation, you know. And they were like, oh, our bad. We didn't see that. Come on now. Yeah, I mean, those documents... I mean, wouldn't that be how they found these people in the first place? And they were like, right? oh, these cute mutton heads with their baby beliefs. Like, obviously, they've matured and remember more in the past four years than they did on the night of. I'll um, be I'll be sure to tell them what they remember just in case they forgot. Right. <laughs> and then they kind of sit there and backpedal and be like, well, my, my reputation is the only thing that – and you're like, man, you just got – 
caught doing some slimy shit, which has been a bit of a thing this whole time. And so mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. They're just not very likable at all. No. Cause when, when Gregory Brown comes up, G money, mm-hmm. they knew that he had stated. So the prosecutors knew that he had stated he saw John Jones go into Garrett's apartment at the time of the murder. Yes. Right. And Mary knew that she had spoken to him or whatever, or had heard the confession. I think the but state she, police went to talk to him. And so okay. he, because he was in know, prison at this time, yes. but this is years later. But in Mary's mind, this is her justification for not telling the defense about this person. Mm-hmm. In her mind, there was no way John Jones could have done it. So it must've been BS. And therefore she didn't even bother looking into it or telling the defense about him. So the beauty of that part of the statement, then you kind of come back to some of the other footage that she saw Garrett in. And it just so happens that you caught a bit of John Jones's house during this time. And you could see him like pull up into the driveway. And then he was walking around, walking his dog mm-hmm. again. Hilarious to me because it is the grainiest shit I have ever seen in my life. Right. And none of that was used or looked at in the same way as very comparable footage of Nick Hillary. In my opinion, they never saw Nick. Again, he kind of put himself in that area, but it could have been anybody walking that dog. I mean, it could have been, he could have been walking a rat. We don't know. <laughs> very well might have been, honestly. No nice dog fluffy rat. With him. Oh, that's true. Uh, yeah. And so when they, the defense does talk to G money and decides that there's, there are too many holes in the story. So they don't mm-hmm. go with it, but they do ask for dismissal because clearly evidence is being withheld. They do right. not get it. <laughs> However, the, what's even more interesting about that is, so they do see video of John Jones walking his dog and Garrett skateboards by. Mm-hmm. And John Jones says, Oh, I didn't even notice him. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's just a coincidence. But when Nick Hillary is in a car at the school and Garrett skates like behind him or some skateboards by him. And he doesn't notice that that's lying. That's clearly lying. And those two pictures side by side, that doesn't look good. I think it's funny too, because you think about if it's a nice day and you're by a school and there's a game going on, do you think there's just one kid out there screwing around? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, like it's probably, there's probably youths everywhere. And so he's (laughs) supposed to like have eyes on this one kid. I mean, like Mm -hmm. also this guy's a coach and a, you know, a parent of like, I couldn't tell you how often I'm like, ugh, kid dismissed. Like my brain is like, nope. And you know, mm-hmm. you kind of go about your business because it's not your kid. And you know, you might be like, oh, okay, kid I recognize or whatever. But I just think again, it's so dismissive of um what people normally deal with in the day to day. Like your your brain is very good at being like filtering through things that are Mm-hmm. immediately necessary for you to pay attention to. And the rest just goes, I don't know, back into the file cabinet or whatever. So, yeah. If you ask John, he would say, I am the least attentive person ever. <laughs> we could be driving down the road and he'll be like, oh my God. And I'm like, what? And he'll be like, a unicorn on fire just drove by us. Did you not see that? And I'm like, <laughs> no, even though I'm looking in the same exact direction as him. Right. Again, it, it doesn't affect my life. So, yeah. nope. I'm not paying attention. Mm-hmm. It drives him crazy. But I totally get this where you wouldn't see a kid. Yeah. Well, like, again, it's it just kind of like put yourself in that situation. What is more likely? You know what I mean? Well, the, it's likely that they want something to fit that doesn't fit. Right. Yeah. So I love that the defense closing, he gets up and he says, listen, the prosecution is going to stand up here in a loud voice and say, you must convict. Now, mm-hmm. there was more, but that's the bit 
that caught my eye because mm-hmm. the prosecutor then gets up for their closing argument, argument and loudly states, you must convict. And I'm like, man, he called it. But the prosecutor gets up. This is William Fitzpatrick. He gets up, mm-hmm. states that Nick chased Garrick down, dragged him into another room, choked the life out of him. Also, I don't think there were any marks really to state that there was choking, but. Well, that would be evidence and they didn't have any of that. They didn't so. have any. And he's crying while he's saying this. The prosecutor's crying. And then he said it was premeditated. He did it so arrogantly and stupidly that he can now be brought to justice. I mean, so stupid that there's literally zero physical evidence of him doing it. That's Nor how stupid did anyone it was. see him. Yeah. yeah. It was just the most horrible closing argument. And I understand the tears. On one hand, I get it. Listen, at the beginning of that first episode, when they show sweet baby Garrett dead on mm-hmm. the green, I cry every time I see it. And I've seen this documentary several times because my son just turned 13. He's the same age. And the idea of it breaks me. So I can understand getting emotional doing this. But Mm -hmm. for me, it felt like an act, right? He was just trying to push that emotion into the jury to get them to understand that this is true because I believe it so much that I'm crying. It's interesting, though, that he probably had been working on this before they knew that there wasn't going to be a jury. So he keeps Mm -hmm. it. That's that was one thing I thought was interesting, like. You don't uh, change that angle there a little right. bit for the right. for the one man watching fellow professional. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I just thought that that was I don't know. Just it's just ill advised. I don't know. It's the best way to say that. It just doesn't. It doesn't play well, especially after mm-hmm. you guys have fucked a couple things up and you know, kind of don't have a leg to stand on anymore. Like I just am like, no, you missed it. You didn't do that. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was a nice try. You have nothing else, so you might as well cry. So obviously there's a few days after closing arguments before they get the the verdict. And when they get the verdict, they call Nick. Now, Nick has moved outside of Potsdam right before this trial started. He moved Mm -hmm. outside of Potsdam. So he's finally living somewhere else. Thank God. Best for him. Best for his kids. But you're watching him say goodbye to his kids, knowing he might not come back. And again, that gets me Every time it breaks my heart at the idea of him saying goodbye, telling his older son, this is what you have to do if I don't come back kind of thing. Yeah. It's horrible. Yep. But on September 28th in 2016, they get the verdict of not guilty Mm -hmm. because all evidence was circumstantial. There was nothing. And Mary Rain's response, we know who did it. We're not even looking into anyone else. Yeah. That's the problem, Mary. You're not looking into anybody else. Yeah. And she tears up too. And it's, you know, it's not to say that people can't be emotional because again, you know, a little boy died and it's very, very sad, but I, I guess I just don't understand why convicting this man who there's not really a lot of support that he did this, why that's justice. You know, they kind of, I know, judge, jury and executioner like years beforehand. So Mm -hmm. that was really very disgusting. Yeah, there are, like they said at the end, there are no winners, right? This poor child Mm -hmm. has died. This family has lost a child. Nick has lost his life. It was ruined the minute they took him into the police station that very first day. He's lost his Mm -hmm. career, everything. And someone is still out there who killed this poor kid. Mm -hmm. And that's the horrible thing is when people get so focused on one person, they don't open their mind to anything else. Mm -hmm. There's someone else out there who possibly killed this kid. They're just going to get away with it because these people could not look beyond this one thing that they wanted. Yeah. I was kind of coming back to some of the stuff where, you know, we talked about there's no evidence. 
there were lots of fingerprints and stuff in the house, but they didn't match anybody's. Um, Mm -hmm. Somebody said, you know, if it had been kid on kid violence, which had been circulated kind of through the rumor mill, that those kids wouldn't be on file. So, uh, you know, I think this required some out of the box thinking, and I, I can't imagine being under the pressure that these law enforcement people were under. Right. I don't think that they, you know, it's not like they're sitting, um, twisting their mustache, like have it in for this poor guy, right? I mean, maybe a little bit later, you kind of get that feeling, but I do think that they wanted to see justice done. It just got perverted. And I don't know. Um, I think they was, didn't want to be wrong. And that's how it gets perverted is they have an idea and they don't want to be wrong because people have a problem admitting that for some reason that's seen as, as a weakness or Mm -hmm. something and it's not. So instead of looking at these other rumors that came up, like possibly, like you said, kid on kid, if he was having problems with other kids or possibly the pass out game Mm -hmm. and he ended up dying. I played that as a kid. So my God, if my kids will (laughs) probably beat them to death, I kid, I kid. I wouldn't hurt my hand beating my kids. Um, <laughs> but then the other one was possibly autoerotic asphyxiation. That is a stretch, but that's because there was a bra there. Yes. I think, listen, a woman lived there for crying out loud. There's going to be a bra somewhere. Um, yep. So th- that I think might've been a little bit of a stretch, but there were a lot of other things that they could have looked into. And they did talk very quickly, like, oh, we looked into it, but there was this that night or the second day mm-hmm. within a couple hours. They're like, Oh yeah, we, we nipped that in the bud and now we're moving on. And I'm like, did you really look into that in a matter of hours? It just seems. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. as quickly as this seems to have moved. And again, there were a lot of other people that kind of chimed in. There were several journalists who were kind of talking about the culture of the town and the culture of, you know, the area and mm-hmm. the one lady, and I don't have her name, but they were kind of on an NPR where they had a kind of a radio show mm-hmm. and um, she had kind of a very controversial article that they put out there when she left town. And it was like, why is this case so complicated? And it really kind of parsed all of this out that there was a lot of systemic racism and there was a lot of hyper-focus on maybe a place where there should not have been. And it wasn't very popular. And could you imagine having lived somewhere and been very close to everybody that was involved? Like uh, she mentions, like, you don't understand how how this was like you would be in line with defense attorneys and stuff like that at the grocery store or the right. post office or whatever. And then trying to live somewhere where all of this very controversial case was going down. So, and I just can't imagine what it was like for Nick Hillary and his family. You know, he had children and they're just trying to live and he can't get a job and support him. I and mean, they didn't really talk necessarily about all of that, but he did lose his job and he wasn't employed. And I assume that's because he could not get work anywhere. And then on the other hand, this other family who lost their kid. And I mean, good Lord, just the dynamic of that has been horrific. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. Well, Nick did file another suit against Potsdam. And and again, I I believe it's rightly so because they've really kind of railroaded him. In 2018, Mary Rain was barred from practicing law in New York for two years due to prosecutorial misconduct. Shocked. I'm shocked, I say. And in 2019, Gary Pasqua, the new DA, was looking mm-hmm. into new leads into the case. So it's still open. It's still ongoing. They don't really have anything new that I've seen recently. There's been some update in the lawsuit that Nick filed. I think they've removed Mark Murray from the lawsuit because there's no proof. The lawsuit states that it was done out of racism and there was no proof that what Mark Murray did was because he was racist. Just maybe not a very good cop. I don't know. But (laughs) 
Just and <laughs> if you make one statement that it's going to be this specific reason and they can't prove it's that specific reason, which I get that. So he was yeah. from it recently, but other yeah. than that, I haven't seen any other updates. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see. I, I mean, like, so this happened 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. If it had been the kid on kid, you know, situation, at what point are those kids old enough that they start to speak up a little bit more? I mean, we've heard of cases where that has happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, somebody's got to know something about this. Someone does. Yeah. If you listen to Gary Snell, he knows exactly what happened in that room that night. <laughs> That's true. That's and what he, he said. He says early and then Nick's like, well, why am I here then? Which I'm like, <laughs> kudos to you, sir. Uh, I know. If you know what happened, why am I here? It was right? beautiful. Yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Now, listen, my takeaway from this documentary one document every time you bump yourself, scratch yourself, <laughs> make sure you have clear documentation of any possible injury you might have. Because a lot of times I'll bump my arm and I won't see a bruise for a couple of days, and by then I've forgotten what I've done. So anytime I make any kind of small possible, I don't know, stubbing of a toe or something, it's documented. Two, well, never turn left. I mean, it's absolutely. right turns it's, everywhere. Yeah, only right turns. That's what we've learned here. Um, drive in circles. God forbid your dog would scratch you because, you know, I think he's got it in for you at that point, even though you've done a lot for them. Mm-mm. I mean, they're just, they just can't be satisfied. Well, no. And they're the ones who are going to get me convicted of murder. I'm sure of it. <laughs> just goddamn dogs. The pod dogs. <laughs> right. Mine is in the other room this time. So he has no commentary. So um, I'm okay with that. He doesn't need to make an appearance every time. It'll, it'll see, it'll feel a little hammy if that's the case. And we can't have that. Mine are so. judging me right now. They've been laying on the bed the whole time, licking their paws loudly. So I apologize if everyone's heard it the entire time. And also looking at me, judging me. Yeah. Shall we go on to then uh, what we're going to watch for next week? Yes. Let's shout. Okay. Next week, we'll be watching Midnight Movies from the margin to the mainstream. And let me explain. This was my pick. And I'm sorry <laughs> if you don't like it, but it talks about six movies that are mainly midnight movies and they're all extremely horrible and awesome at the same time. So you have El Topo, you have Night of the Living Dead, Rocky Horror Picture Show, mm. Pink Flamingos, The Harder They Come, and Eraserhead. Now, if you've seen any one of these movies, you should watch this documentary. If you've seen all of these movies, you should watch the documentary. And if you haven't seen any of them, please go watch at least one of them. I recommend not a racer head and then go watch the documentary. <laughs> yeah. So we would be super happy to have comments and questions. If you'd like to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter at mm-hmm. go yourself, we try to post and I'm trying to get better about that, but a little bit of uh, fodder would be great. I think I would learn a lot. So other than that, we'll ask you to rate with you and subscribe so we can reach more ears. So that'd be great. Also, if you have any suggestions for documentaries, something that you were really passionate about and you want to hear us talk about, or you want to share because you want everyone to see it, let us know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're um, kind of pulling our next cohort together, as it were. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But anyway, I think that's about it. Stay safe, friends. Don't turn left. Later. Later.